Welcome to Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice as well as humanities research. Do doctors and patients speak the same language and how can we use narrative to bridge the evident gaps? These are the questions that animate the work. Mind Reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life Project at Oxford University and the University of Birmingham, and expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland and the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health particularly. This podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we postponed due to COVID-19, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. I'm Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady, your host for the podcast. I'm based in the School of English at UCD. This first segment of Vaccinating Ireland, Facts, Fears and Fictions in the Mind Reading Experts in Conversation series comes from Professor Geraldine Meany, Professor of Cultural Theory and Director of the Centre for Cultural Analytics at University College Dublin. Her research interests include gender, ethnicity and the application of digital methodologies to identify recurrent patterns in 19th and 20th century anxieties about contagion, vaccination and public health. In 2020, Professor Meany was one of the first two Irish women to be awarded an ERC Advanced Investigator Award for research on European migrants in the British imagination, Victorian and neo-Victorian culture. And Professor Meany is here to talk to us about smallpox vaccination and its reception in 19th century Ireland and the UK. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, I suppose I want to talk primarily about the long history of the relationship between epidemics and vaccination and the way in which both epidemics and responses to vaccine illustrate the best and the worst of, of human nature. Um, it is very well documented that epidemics over the millennia have brought out the worst in human nature. Outbreaks of the Black Death in medieval and early modern Europe led to the scapegoating and massacre of local Jewish populations for centuries. On the other hand, the Black Death also led to the legendary self-sacrifice of the villagers of the English plague village of Eam in Derbyshire, who locked themselves away to suffer in isolation rather than risk spreading the disease. We've heard a lot over the last year about the lethal impact of the Spanish flu a century ago. Medical historian Sam Cohen has noted that it was accompanied by an epidemic of kindness, as he describes it, not least by the elderly in caring for the young, who were more vulnerable to that particular pandemic. I would really recommend that anybody who's interested in a very vibrant portrayal and an extremely well-researched one uh, of the impact of Spanish flu on a local population, read the Icelandic novelist Sion's novel Moonstone. The descriptions there of elderly ladies trudging around Reykjavik looking for fuel and food for their cares, that the young people that they're looking after, um, would really, I think, be a kind of startling counterpoint to some of the discussions about what do we owe the elderly in the current pandemic. Um, and anybody who read that alongside Emma Donoghue's Pull of the Stars published last year uh, might get a very vivid picture of what happens when a pandemic rampages until it burns itself out. Similarly, over the centuries, the reaction to vaccines as they have developed gives us an indication of both our capacity for terrible fear leading us to terrible decisions and our capacity to develop, to learn, 
to educate ourselves and to act in the common good. Over the two centuries, the last two centuries, um, vaccination has vanquished so many once lethal diseases. It has a huge impact, particularly on child mortality in the Western world. It has shown again the best and worst of what human beings can do when they put their minds to it or not. It's worth remembering that the responses to vaccine and, and the development of vaccines has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the Contagion project, which was a collaboration between computer scientists and literary scholars, analysed almost 35,000 volumes of the British Library's 19th century collection, found 3,000 references to vaccines and vaccination, of which the vast majority were either positive or just neutral descriptions. So whilst those who have objected to vaccination have rioted, have caused massive levels of, of fear uh, around public health, they have not been in the majority or vaccination would not have worked to eradicate diseases like smallpox, which were once major killers, particularly of children. We are currently at an extraordinary turning point where for the very first time, science can outrun a pandemic. Drawing on those centuries of research and all the resources of contemporary science, medicine and society, we have done something extraordinary in the last year. It's very easy to despair that with all the resources of modern communications, we are still confronted with the same patterns of suspicion and unease that greeted Jenner and the development of the smallpox vaccine. On the other hand, that suspicion, that ignorance did not triumph. And I think it's really important that we focus on that, uh, that despite all of that unease, the vaccine slowly and gradually, as for example, the understanding of potential for infection, the capacity to produce it expanded, then the success of the vaccine was guaranteed. So human suspicion of it was not fatal, okay? Collectively, individually, it was along the way. There were people who could have survived smallpox particularly who didn't because they weren't vaccinated. When we look at this much, much smaller number of texts from the 19th century, which express anti-vaccination views, we see certain recurrent themes. And those recurrent themes, I think, can be seen in contemporary discourse as well. There is suspicion of authority, above all suspicion of authority. Uh, the mechanisms for public health in the 19th century, as in our own age, are very closely connected with the mechanisms of local and national government and where populations are suspicious of those governments, there can be quite uh, a reticence around availing of vaccines. That isn't universally true. Ireland's actually a really interesting case where the influence of the church actually counteracted suspicion of the state, uh, where a 19th century pontiff decided that Jenner's discovery was a gift from God and propagated that. Um, it was one of the very few instances, I suspect, where uh, papal infallibility was used for the advancement of uh, science. Uh, 
So there was quite high uptakes of, of vaccines historically in Ireland. So we, we have that tradition. Uh, the Scottish as well, and that may be to do with patterns of scientific um, education in Scotland, were much more prone than English populations, for example, to take up the vaccine when it was offered to them. As well as suspicion of authority, one of the major factors in uptake of vaccines uh, was the kind of language of horror that was very effectively deployed by anti-vaccinators. Uh, I know that David's going to talk about how this works in the modern world, but certainly within the 19th century text that we looked at, four words pop out. Pollution, infection, poison and horror. Okay? And associations between those. If you look at some of the cartoons from that period, and this is a, an audio medium, so I can't show them to you, uh, you see particularly the use of horror imagery, gothic imagery, as we would see it. There's a cartoon preserved in the College of Physicians in Philadelphia, where vaccination is portrayed as a giant snake pursuing a mother and child. And particularly that language of horror and pollution and infection um, is being used to frighten mothers. And mothers seem to be the key battleground in the 19th century. Uh, the idea of the mother having to intervene to save her child from this terrible monster of vaccination, which is portrayed in that cartoon, is very striking. Uh, again, in some of George Cruikshank's very famous um, satirical cartoons against smallpox vaccination at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, we have a figure of the dead child, the child who's been killed by the vaccination. Now remember, this is not entirely unreasonable in that this is prior to the invention of antibiotics, prior to an understanding of infection, and, and infection did happen. Okay? Uh, however, by the time you get to the mid-century, there is a statistical argument pushing back against this kind of imagery, which is saying, look at the way child mortality has gone down in areas where there's high levels of vaccination. Okay? And that is being pushed through the popular press. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, what I would argue really is that it's, it's really useful to focus not so much on the horror, the terror and the poison, and to focus on what worked in terms of communicating with the broader publics of the 19th century. Um, the successes of previous generations can be built on. And there was success in reaching out to the public with both factual information and cultural representation of the benefits of vaccination. Now, this has always had a double edge. Uh, there has always been a role for opinion leaders in informing the public. So Charles Dickens, one of the most popular magazines of the 19th century, uh, Household Worlds, which he edited for a very long time, published again and again through the 1850s and onwards, uh, material which on the one hand informed the public about vaccination, certainly you know, um, satirized and criticized those who did not have their children particularly vaccinated, um, but also scrupulously documented, gave figures on the decline in cases of smallpox in areas where there was high levels of vaccination. Um, quite interesting to, to read this piece from July 1850. 
Although vaccination is actively promoted by the Poor Law Board, it is now performed at the public expense and affords almost complete immunity from smallpox, it is still neglected to a great extent by the ignorant classes of society. Some of the objections to it are excuses for negligence. Others are based on a sort of fatalism. Remember, these are the Victorians. They don't mince their moral words. Okay? Uh, but such cases as the Register of Nottingham records, and he's specifically reacting to cases of smallpox in Nottingham, are criminal. And it is to be feared spring from the same cruelty as leads to the sacrifice of children's lives in other circumstances. Now, words like criminal and cruelty are very strong words. And this is a really interesting example where people promulgating vaccination are using language which is just as strong as those who are creating fear about it. Uh, I think ethically we would draw back from describing it as cruelty to refuse to get your children uh, vaccinated. But maybe we should start thinking about this kind of Victorian fighting fire with fire. Okay. Uh, Dickens and Dickens had a huge level of control over these editorials. Uh, describes a woman who had lost a child by disease, who assured the registrar that she would rather lose half a dozen children by it than fly in the face of providence in having them vaccinated. So the language of child sacrifice is being used here uh, to describe those who will not have their children vaccinated. Uh, it's powerful, it's very high impact. Um, now, we do not have statistics on how many people that might have persuaded. Okay, one of the things which may be very uh, powerful is the association with resistance to vaccination with ignorance um, and, and this was a, a, a very class stratified society, uh, that thing of the ignorant classes also means the poor. Okay, so there is a classist element in this as well. Um, Dickens had every reason to understand how little trust the Victorian poor would have put in the poor law board, no matter how free the vaccination programme. In fact, they would have been possibly twice as suspicious because it was offering them this for free. Um, because that was not what it did. Okay. Um, these people who had very high degree of resistance and saw it as flying in the face of providence often were for minority religions. And again, uh, the idea that the state and the established churches were conspiring against them uh, had a fertile ground because sometimes they were okay so the level of trust that you have in the authorities of public health when you start is a really important factor in and how people react to the possibility of vaccination in that context in the 19th century the disease itself was cruelly more effective than public health advice when vaccination numbers declined, epidemics surged up and then people overcame their hesitancy and vaccinated themselves and their children. They took up the poor law board on its offer. In many of the representations uh, which we've looked at, the role of parents is crucial. Now, this is partly because, again, Victorians, they're obsessed with the family. OK, so everything is done through the family. Uh, but it, one of the other elements in it is the idea of vaccination, or in a minority of cases, resistance to vaccination, as a question of caring, a caring responsibility. So vaccination becomes a caring responsibility. 
possibly more um, effective in that it was much more likely to be read by uh, women and by the lower middle classes, who would be a key group here, was the use of popular fiction rather than editorials. Okay. So rather than editorializing and using this very strong language, there was a creation of narratives. Um, the three volume novel, often serialized in advance, is the soap opera and the box set combined of the mid 19th century. Okay. Uh, in fact, many of the structures of soap opera are actually derived from it as a form. Um, and within popular fiction, the vast majority of representations of vaccination are of it as a normal, sensible, everyday occurrence and a part of everyday family life. Uh, there's also a very strong association between vaccination and hygiene, that it's, it's seen as keeping your family clean and safe. Uh, Dinah Craig's 1856 novel, John Halifax Gentleman, which was adapted for TV as late as the 1970s, is a really interesting example of how vaccination um, prosperity and social achievement are combined in the narrative. So if, if you want to move on towards a more prosperous, more stable, um, a more gentlemanly existence, then vaccination is part of the process. Okay, so, so this idea that vaccination is something which you do to protect your family uh, is very strong and moral fables, uh, and this is a fable, it's, it's a moral fable, it's a way of inculcating both good public health practice, vaccination, but also social responsibility within the novel. And Craig's novel is really interesting because it's not just about the impact of vaccination on you and your family. Um, John and, and his wife, Mary, have vaccinated all their own children, okay? Um, but they are then confronted with a neighbour who was anti-vax and who has not vaccinated her children and who turns up needing assistance with her sick little boy. Um, and smallpox is associated in many of the chronicles with extreme cruelty where people were simply left to die. Okay, where, where people were so afraid of it uh, that they just ran and they closed their doors. But because the Halifaxes have vaccinated their own children, the initial response of Mary, which is my children, my children, where she, as a mother, even as a mother, she closed the door against the other woman, is overcome. And she and John talk and think, well, Mr. Jenner says our children, Dr. Jenner, he's described as, has assured us that in every case after vaccination, it has only been the slightest form of the complaint. So the vaccination enables them to be good neighbours, to be good members of society, but also to be Christian. And there's a very strong religious element in this. Uh, and I think Craig is very clever in this novel, because if some of the scruples about vaccination are about you know, running in the face of providence, she represents the Christian family as having an obligation to vaccinate so that they can do their Christian duty. It's, it's, it's quite subtle. Well, it's not really all that subtle. It's very moralistic, but it's, it's very effective. Um, and you have these scenes of melodrama of the mother looking for assistance for her child, potentially being turned away and then being told, no, no, come in, we, we, we will care for you. Okay, So it's a, it's a fascinating insight into the attitudes. 
1877, you can see this moving down through the classes. Um, it quite fascinating Anglo-Irish novelist called Bertha Jane Adams, but she had numerous names. She married a lot. Uh, wrote a novel in 1877 called Winstow. Um, and in it, it's very much a story of uh, a clever boy getting ahead despite his disability. Again, an interesting novel. Um, but Mother Dutton, who has taken on the care of our, our hero, uh, is asked at one stage um, if the child has ever been baptised as a foundling. Um, and she's highly irate at this. I'm not one to neglect nothing, she says. I always had my children done for both worlds. There was every individual one vaccinated by the parish doctor and christened by the parish parson. I was brought up respectable myself and I brings them up the same. Okay. So Mother Dutton in this is, is, is a, again, a figure of Christian kindness and goodness, uh, but you know, literally that's her name, Mother Dutton. She's, she's a, this is good maternal practice. She's a good woman, a good mother. Uh, she also has great aspirations for the children in her care and is a great believer in what she calls edification. So vaccine is part of her duty of care, particularly to the disabled child in her care, that, that he's, she understands that he's vulnerable. Um, and it's also part of her sense of what a respectable woman would do. Now, we might not like the Victorian implications there that to be a respectable, good mother, you have to take the authoritative public health advice. Nonetheless, nonetheless, you can't argue with the fact that it becomes something which is normalised precisely because it is seen as something that the good parent and the good mother does. So in the 1850s, you see with Dickens, he is presenting this idea of an ignorant woman sacrificing her children on the altar of her own prejudices in relation to vaccination. By 30 years later, less than 30 years later, that figure has been replaced by this woman. Comical, not very well educated herself, but, but understanding for the good of the next generation that this is something which it is her duty to do. So attitudes changed and they changed rather quickly. Uh, it seems to me. Now, one of the factors of this um, that is not talked about in relation to vaccines in the contemporary era, or rarely, is uh, compulsion. Because at various stages, there was a legal compulsion to vaccinate. And again, it was a bit like the public reactions. If a an epidemic surged, then there was this reaction to legislate and in legislating to make it compulsory. Uh, and one of the things which is going on here is that the, that compulsion um, is being sweetened and softened and presented not in legal language, you'll be fined if you don't vaccinate your children, uh, but presented in these scenes of caring. Right? So it's the complete opposite of that. This is a scene of a, the good mother minding her child, you know, the, this kind of nurturing, decent, gentle woman has the child vaccinated. So that softens the state compulsion for a vaccination. So I suppose what I am saying is that in the current context where there is a hesitation about vaccines on behalf of some people, once again, it's a minority and the more established the vaccine becomes, the smaller that minority becomes as well. That's the historical precedent. Um, but we perhaps look at the way in which using narratives 
of ordinary family life to present vaccination as something which is both normal and positive and part of that duty of care which we have to each other uh, and that we can draw on the way in which opinion leaders and popular fictions of one kind or another did that job in the 19th century.